Well, it is a wonderful privilege and honor to share God's Word with you this morning. If you would open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. We'll specifically be in verses 26 through 29 this morning. If you are joining with us on campus and you do not have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to look underneath the seat in front of you or underneath the seat that you're sitting in. There should be a blue Bible there. I would encourage you to take that Bible, open up to page 1076. 1076. We also would love for you to take that Bible home with you as a gift from us to you because God's Word is so, so important. Uh, before we uh, begin our time studying God's Word, let us go to the Lord uh, very quickly and just pray and ask Him to bless our time. Lord, we just ask that you go before us this morning, Lord, that you would, uh, in, your, in your grace and your mercy towards us, reveal truth to us, Lord. Let it uh, just resonate with our heart and our soul, and Lord, let it uh, bring about great desire for us to obey and walk in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Just as a short recap so we can get to where we are this morning, if you have not been with us during our time in this study in Galatians, uh, the Gospel of Grace, I would encourage you to go to our church website or subscribe to our church podcast. Uh, it would be very important to, to help understand where we're at. But last week, uh, as we studied uh, Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 25, uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul did an amazing job of bringing side by side two very, very important things. Uh, the, God, the promise that was given to Abraham and the law that was given to Moses. And, and really, that is significant because if we remember, as Paul and Barnabas went into the region of Galatia and shared the gospel and lives were changed and churches were planted, uh, pretty much immediately after they left, false teachers were coming in and, and saying, yes, you need Jesus, but, but you need something else. You need works. You need to adhere to the law of Moses and you need to, the law given to Moses and you need to uh, be circumcised. And so it wasn't just uh, Jesus, right? In other words, uh, how, do I, uh, how do I become right with God and how do I remain right with God? That is, a, that is a question that not only plagued them back then, but it's a question that really we need to address today. And so there's only one way that that happens, and that is through the gospel promise that is given to us in Jesus Christ. And so what Paul does is he brings uh, the law and the promise side by side, and what we find is that it is the law that is really the on-ramp to the gospel highway of God's grace. And that is important, because the law had a temporal purpose. It's not permanent like the promise is, right? The law, it, it exposes our sin. Right? It, it really is a mirror. It reflects the holiness of God. It reflects the sinfulness of man. Uh, the law was given to, to not only restrain sin, but what we find is when we try to fulfill the law in our own flesh, our own power, our own works, we don't get better. We get worse, right? Now, we try to justify it. Yeah, the speed limit says 45. No one's around. I'm going to go 55, right? Or whatever it is. And so the law shows us that we cannot do it, right? In other words, the law tells us what to do, but it does not give us the power to fulfill it. And so why then the law? Again, it exposes our sin. But ultimately, the law drives us to Jesus Christ because it is the law itself that holds us captive. It is the law itself that is our guardian. It's the law that imprisons us. It's the daily, moment-by-moment moment reminder that no matter how good we do, according to God's holiness and standards, it is not good enough. So it drives us to the cross. And praise be to God that in that frustration and desperation, it drives us to the very place we need to go to find rest, 
for our souls. And so it's based on that, the very fact that it's faith in Jesus Christ that brings about radical change. No longer in prison. No longer held captive. No longer under guardian. That radical change brings about tremendous gospel hope. And what we find in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29, is this beautiful reminder and picture of what it means to have union with Christ. The scripture says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So Christ is all over this particular passage, and rightly so. And so what is it that we find as followers of Christ when it comes to our union with Christ? There's three things that we want to point out just from this passage uh, this morning. The first one is this. Union in Christ equals we are sons. In other words, we have a new relationship with God. Our status has changed. Verse 26, the scripture again said, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. How? Through faith. And I love that phrase, that you are all sons of God. Paul is referring both to Jews and Gentiles who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And this is great news because this hasn't always been the case. In fact, just like the Jews and Gentiles in Paul's day, Jews and Gentiles today stand condemned because of our sin. We enter into this world hostile to the things of God, enemies of God. In fact, the scripture says in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and you, plural, were dead in your trespasses and sins. Again, Paul is reminding the, the Christians in Ephesus that this is who you once were. And so he's saying that to us as well. He says in verse 2, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So we were dead in our sin. We were hopeless and helpless in ourselves. We lived in constant disobedience, dominated by the things of this world, the devil and our own sinful desires. And we were by nature children of wrath like the, mess, like the rest of mankind, guilty, doomed, condemned, no hope, every single one of us. And yet, it's in that moment, in that very hopelessness and helplessness, that in the darkness, darkest corners of my heart and your heart, the light of the gospel of God's amazing grace comes in. How do we know? Verse 4. But God. Man, hear it. Yes, I was dead, but God. Yes, I was disobedient, but God. Yes, I was dominated, but God. Yes, I was doomed, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love of which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The beautiful truth that once enemies of God, now we are alive in Christ. Faith in Jesus radically changes everything. And so when Paul says we are all sons of God through faith, this is beautiful news. Now, why all sons? Why does Paul call us sons? Is the, the gospel pro-male and anti-female? Is that what's being communicated here? Absolutely not. Paul uses sons because it was the son that received the full inheritance from the father. The son was the, had the highest rank, the highest status in the family. So when Paul says we are all sons, he's saying that all of us, regardless of gender and age, we have the highest status. We are sons 
of God. And as sons of God, what Jesus inherited, you and I inherit. The very resources that Jesus has at his disposal are the very resources that you and I have at our disposal today. And it's based on that that Paul says in verse 27, For as many of you were, as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So, so all of us, sons of God, through, through faith, right? Not through works. We have been baptized with Christ. We have been immersed in Christ. This is not talking about water baptism. This is very, very important. Water baptism is the outward symbol of what has already happened internally, right? That's important. Just like circumcision or adherence to the law can't make you right with God, baptism cannot make you right. Water baptism cannot make you right with God. Only faith. And this is important. Please hear the message of the gospel. God is the universal king. But he is not the universal father. What do I mean by that? Regardless if you acknowledge King Jesus as king, he will always be king. But he will not be your heavenly father. God will not be your heavenly father unless you receive Jesus Christ through faith. So that is very, very important. But when you put your faith in Jesus, you have a new identity. It says that we are baptized in Christ. We put on Christ. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Man, I love getting a new set of clothes, don't you? That's exactly what happened when you came to faith in Christ. God gave you a new set of clothes. You put on Christ. And this is important because in Roman society, uh, there was a, a time and in, in place of a young person's life where they began to approach that adulthood, if you will. And what the father would do is the father would exchange those previous clothes with a new set of clothes to, to symbolize that you are now of age in a far, far, far greater way. The God of heaven exchanged your filthy rags of sin, my filthy rags of sins for the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, his son. We are clothed in the very righteousness of Christ. My status has changed. I have a new set of clothes. And because my position has changed, now the way that I live changes as well. So my new position in Christ now changes the way that I practice my life, right? That's important. This is what Paul says in Romans 6 as he's speaking there in verses 1 and 2. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? In other words, our lives change because the gospel is about transformation from the inside out. And that's what he's done. He goes on to say in verse 3, Do you not know that all of us have been baptized in Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in, I love it, newness of life. Remember the picture that we do when we, when we have water baptism at our church. I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because it is the full work of the triune God, right? Your old life buried in his death and your new life raised in his glorious resurrection. There is the scripture that we bring to the table every time we witness and celebrate baptism here at Charleston Baptist Church. Paul continues in verse 5 of chapter 6. For if we have been united with him in death like his, 
we shall certainly be united with him in the resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. We have new power in Christ. That's what the scripture is teaching us. Again, sin is not just the things that we do wrong, right? Sin is about the power of bondage that we were once in. We were enslaved to it. But now we have been set free. My new identity in Christ means that I am free to live my whole life, every part of my life, in response to God's amazing grace and his love toward me. We are all his sons through faith, so daily we live fully clothed in him. It's the privilege and yet urgent call to all of us as followers of Christ. Hear the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 13. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This reminds all of us that walking in holiness, the very holiness of God, is a fight against this world, our flesh, and Satan. And our only hope... Our only hope is the finished work of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit of God that indwells us. We are clothed with Christ. We have already won, right? So united in Christ means we are sons. Secondly, united in Christ means we are one. We are one. We have a new family. And within that new family, guess what? We have unity because of the gospel. Verse 28, Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. To all the sons of God through faith in Christ, we are one united family. And to the original here, to the Christians there in Galatia, this is amazing gospel news. Why? Because for centuries upon centuries, slaves and women were pieces of property in many ways. And the Jews saw the Gentiles as those who were cut off from God. In fact, according to Jewish history, the religious leaders, every single day, every single morning, they would pray this prayer. I thank God that I am a Jew, not a Gentile, a man, not a woman, a free man and not a slave. And Jesus comes onto the scene and he radically changes it. He begins to right man's wrong and praise God for that. What does this mean? What is this gospel implication for you and I today? It means that there is no place for racial or cultural prejudice, neither Jew nor Greek. Jews generally considered themselves superior to the Gentiles. Why? Because they were God's covenant people. Remember, it was the Judaizers who were coming in, teaching that false gospel. Those Gentiles who were coming to faith by grace and God, by grace through faith. They, he was saying, they were saying, what? yes, you need Jesus, but you need to adhere to the Jewish customs in order to be right with God. But in Christ, all these barriers of race and culture are torn down. This is a gospel privilege that you and I have as the gospel community here. The scripture says in Ephesians 2, 12 and 13, remember that you, speaking to the Gentiles, were at one time separated from Christ. Listen to, listen to where the Gentiles were. Listen to these words. You were what? You were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been what? You have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So you and I as Gentiles, I would assume most of us here today are Gentiles. That means we don't come from Jewish lineage. For the Gentiles, those who are non-Jewish, 
There is tremendous desperation in these two verses. No Christ, no citizenship, no promise, no hope, no knowledge or experience with the true and living God. But in Christ, this is no longer the case. Because of the work of Christ, the finished work of Christ, we stand equally before the Lord. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who made us both one, Jew and Gentile, together, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so that making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing what? The hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, that's talking about the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near to the Jews. So who needs the gospel? both Jews and Gentiles, for through him we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. Why is this important? I understand sometimes we'll hear and say that I'm colorblind, right? God is colorblind to color, and man, that is not true. God is the God of diversity, glorious diversity in how he brings it together through the gospel of his grace. The very fact that it's the gospel itself that reminds us that we have fellowship at the table with one another. And this is precisely the issue that Paul had to address in Galatians chapter 2. Remember, it was Peter who removed himself from the table because of what he was eating or what they were eating, the Gentiles were eating. So this is very, very important. We have equal access to the Father because of the finished work of Christ. This means that Jesus Christ did not come to die for a specific race or a specific culture. He came to die for all races and for all cultures. And we need to remember that within the body of Christ. The second thing that he tells us about the gospel and how it impacts relationships, he says there is no place for social elitism, or meaning your status doesn't change who you are in Christ, neither slave nor free. There aren't second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Now keep in mind... Uh, that a third of the Roman world at this time, the population there, were slaves. So you got approximately 60 million. So this is a, a pretty large group of people. Uh, and the, the best correlation we have today to that, it would be like the workplace environment where we have bosses and we have uh, those who work underneath the bosses. And so what we have here is we, a reminder that, that though these slaves were not always mistreated, and many times they were very much mistreated. And so you have, in the first century, again, people coming to faith in Christ, the gospel coming onto the scene for the very first time, the church is born, and you have these status symbols of boss and employer coming together. Now they are saved by grace through faith. How does that impact their life? What changes in how they deal with one another and treat one another? And the reminder is that we are, again, equal in Christ. And so what Paul does in Ephesians 6 would be a good example. In verses 5 through 8, he shares with the employer, how is it that you respond to your boss? And he says that you, you work honestly, you work with integrity, you work uh, w joyfully. You work because of what Christ is doing in you and through you. And then he switches gears. He says, okay, what about, what about the boss? What about the master to the slave or to the employee, to use our language? How, how does that work? Man, this is beautiful. Verse 9 of Ephesians 6. Masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. So your social status means that there is no room for favoritism within 
the kingdom of God. Whatever your social status is as a follower of Christ, use your status in life to serve and meet the needs of others. Honor those who have, you have authority over. Care for them. Be gentle towards them. Consider them based on their position in Christ, not their position in the workplace, right? So he's reminding us of the gospel implications that we have in Christ. And how is it that we are so clouded by social status in our life? Not even in the workplace. But we have judgments based on how people dress and what people look like and all these different things. And, and God says, in Christ, you're one. You're equal. You're united together because of me. The third relationship that he addresses here, he says, there is no place for sexual di discrimination. He says, no male and female. Now, it's very, very important for us to understand what the scripture is not saying. The scripture is not saying that there are no genders, right? That's not what the scripture is saying at all. Uh, in fact, I will say this. According to the word of God, all the way back at the beginning, God uniquely and designed you exactly how you are from birth, right? He knew your days, he ordained your days, and he ordained your gender. And there's only two genders, male or female. That's it. And he did it according to his purpose, according to his promise, according to his glory, and so we must rest in that truth. And that is a false lie that's being crushed at us in this society that we live in. And we have to remind ourselves that God is the God of all wisdom and all authority. And we trust in him and how he has created us. So not only did he ordain the number of our days, but he ordained the gender in which we entered our days. The scripture also isn't saying that there aren't any gender roles, right? That's the other thing that's coming down the pipe at us is that there are no gender roles. In fact, they'll use this particular passage to show that. That is not true. Listen, when God created everything, he created it with a certain function, right? And that function didn't start with, stop with just creation from earth and all that. It entered into uh, the family. It entered into the church. So there is a creative order, a creative function within not only the body of Christ, but your home and society in general. And so it reminds us, uh, one particular passage that jumps out of mind is in Ephesians 5 when, when the Apostle Paul is talking about uh, the husband's role or relationship uh, with his spouse. And, and he says, the husband, you are, you are the head of the home. That is not an imperative. That's not a command. That's not who you're striving to be or who you want to become. That's an indicative. That is a truth. That is who you are by God's ordained purpose. You are the head of the home. So when Paul speaks of neither male nor female, he's addressing the treatment of women specifically. Women in many ways were seen as possessions, not people. Most often they had no rights, and through the gospel, God elevates the preciousness, uh, the value of women in society. Listen, the gospel has and will always do far more for women in society than any man-made philosophy or agenda will ever push. This is what the gospel does. In fact, when Peter writes to first century Christians, again, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, he says this to the men, to the husbands. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the women as the weaker vessels, since they are heirs with you on the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, the question that we have is, how do we address weaker vessel, right? That's where people get hung up, because they misunderstand what the Greek language is talking about. It's not talking about inferiority. It is talking about the irreplaceable value that women have. They are one of a kind created in Christ. The, the most precious china and porcelain that you can find in the world. That's what Peter is speaking to the men. Listen, you used to be harsh to your spouse, to your wife. But now that the gospel has radically changed you, you treat her as an equal. 
And it's a reminder to us as brothers in Christ that when we see and treat our sisters in Christ, we treat them as they already are. They are joint heirs with Christ. They're not there to meet my needs and do what I want. No, they're there to honor Christ. And through that, they honor me. They honor you just as we honor them. So again, the gospel does amazing things. The gospel of grace reminds us that God welcomes everyone equally regardless of race, heritage, social status, and gender. And it's only through the power of the gospel that we are one in Christ. We're not fighting for unity. We already have it in him. We are guarding that unity. How do we guard it? Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 2, we do it with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And we see this in the Holy Spirit, the Jesus Christ, the Son, and God the Father. Look at what it says here. Consider the person of the Holy Spirit. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. Think about Jesus. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Consider the, the work of the Heavenly Father. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The picture of unity. All three persons of the Godhead had a different role. But they were in complete unity with that role. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That is the picture of gospel unity. We come to Christ on level ground. We are all sinners. We all stand on level ground. We are all in Christ. We are one. And so we have distinctions, right? This is not robbing us of our distinctions. But our distinctions, at best, are secondary, right? Primary is the gospel itself why does that matter? Why is unity with the, with the body of Christ so important? John 13, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The heartbeat of the church, listen, the heartbeat of the church is not music camp. It's not missions. It's not ministry. It's not just praying. It's not giving. It's not all those things. Those things are extremely important. But the heartbeat of the church is found in the unity within the body of Christ as it expresses itself in things like music camp, missions, different ministries, giving, and prayer. So that's important. Union in Christ means we are one. Third, union in Christ. We are blessed. We are blessed. And we'll hit this very quickly because next week we'll pick up on uh, that thought when we think about adoption. Uh, but the scripture says in verse 29, And if you are Christ and you are Abraham's offsprings, Heirs according to the promise. So everything hinges on what? The promise. The promise is so, so important. So when we look at the Old Testament, remember it was Abraham that re received the promise in Genesis 12. It was given again in Genesis 15. It was given again in Genesis 17. It was given again in Genesis 22. We have to remind ourselves that the promise, the offspring or the seed, isn't based on Abraham himself. Remember, the promise was given all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. After sin entered the world, God gave a promise that he was going to send someone to fix what we broke, right? To restore the relationship that was broken because of our sin. So everything in redemptive history in the Old Testament is looking towards the Messiah, looking towards Christ. Everything in redemptive history from today on is what? Is looking back to the finished work of Christ. So everything is... Hindering on him, hinging on him. So he is the promise fulfilled, right? And out of that promise, because of union in Christ, we are blessed. Now think about this blessing for just a minute. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. So what is one of our blessings? That Christ has dealt with our past. Praise God for that, right? We are saved by His glorious grace. Not only that, the Scripture says that we, are, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, meaning it can't be taken away from you. It's undefiled. It's free from sin and the effects of sin. It's unfading and kept in heaven for you. you will, it will never lose its beauty. This means what? That in Christ, our future is glorious. That is a tremendous blessing that we have because of our union in Christ. Verse 5 says, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This means that our present is secure. Think about that word guarded. It's a military term. And there are two functions of the fact that we are guarded in Christ. That means that we can never, ever, ever lose our salvation. Once you have genuinely put your faith in the finished work of Christ, it can never be taken away from you. Praise God for that. The second guarding that happens is we will never lose. We will always be victorious in Christ. Now, there are days where we walk like we're defeated. We feel like we are defeated. But when we truly understand the blessings that we have in Christ, and we will know, we will know, we reign victorious. Why? Because Christ himself reigns victorious. We have union in Christ. I think it's healthy for every follower of Christ to daily, to daily meditate on the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. We know gospel truth. We have a new identity. We have new clothes. We have unity within the body. We are tremendously blessed. But then life happens. The mind gets frail. The heart gets weak. Sometimes the flesh gets even stronger. And we forget that we are who we are because of Christ. We forget the righteousness that we have in Christ. We forget the unity that we have in Christ. We forget the tremendous blessings we have in Christ. And so I encourage you, Daily, meditate on the spiritual blessings that you have in Christ. And one of the greatest places to go is in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 from verses uh, 3 to 14. And I love it because in the Greek, that's one long sentence. Over 200 words. That's the class I needed to be in, right? I could have passed that one. But I had to do a bunch of redos in English, right? But it's beautiful. It's one flowing statement of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. And this is... Only some of them. It's not all of them. So I just want us to meditate on this scripture. Just praise God for who you are in Christ and whose you are in Christ. The scripture beginning in uh, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purposes of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 11. In him 
we have obtained an inheritance and having been predestined according to his purpose of him who works all things according to his counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be in the praise, to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In other words, in Christ... You lack nothing. You have union in Christ. We are sons. We have union in Christ. We are one. We have union with Christ. We are blessed.